Department of Homeland Security leaders are ringing the alarm bell about an expired chemical security program. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency lost its authority to regulate high-risk chemical facilities late last month. Leaders are urging the Senate to pass a reauthorization bill when it returns from August recess. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. People forget that infrastructure word on CISA's title, I think, sometimes. So what is the latest on this program? What's expired? And any effects so far? Yeah, I was going to point that out as well. This is about infrastructure security. The authorization for the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards, or CFATS program, as it's called, expired on July 28th. Uh, That's after the Senate failed to pass a reauthorization bill before going on recess. It's the first time the program hasn't been reauthorized since it was created in 2007. It allows DHS and CISA to regulate the security and conduct inspections of more than 3,200 high-risk chemical facilities across the country. CISA is holding its annual chemical security summit this week. And of course, this lapse in authority has really been the focus of the summit this year. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas appeared and implored the Senate to reauthorize CFATS as soon as it gets back in session. CISA Director Jen Easterly talked about the program, calling it a shining example of smart regulation that has the buy-in of industry. We're talking about things like inadequate security controls, inability to detect intruders, insufficient access controls, inadequate security training. We're talking about insufficient cybersecurity patching and vulnerability screening, vulnerability scanning, um, missing information in background investigations. I mean, these are actual vulnerabilities that have been identified by our inspectors working hand in hand with these high-risk chemical facilities And these are vulnerabilities that have been mitigated because of the program. So the question is, why did that program not get reauthorized? Did it just simply get ground up in the general lethargy that is Congress these days or logjam, I should say? Well, actually, you know, the House of Representatives passed CFAT's reauthorization earlier this year, a 409 to 1 vote. The Senate was moving to vote on reauthorization in late July before they went on recess. But Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Ranking Member Rand Paul blocked a fast-track vote on the bill. He argued in a floor floor speech, rather, that these regulations favor big industry while serving as a barrier for small businesses, and they should have a hearing on the bill before they move to actually reauthorize this program. Paul's office, when I reached out, did not, you know, say whether he sees a path forward for when they get back from recess. They just pointed me to his floor speech. So it will be interesting to see whether his GAC moves to mark up a bill quickly when the Senate gets back next week. Yeah. So what could happen long term if this authority doesn't come back and Senator Paul simply sits on it? Well, so far, there have been some uh, effects in terms of, uh, you know, referring people who want to access chemicals at these facilities to the terrorism watch list. That's something that CISA typically does under this program. It has not been able to do that. Uh, CISA says it gets about 300 names a day in terms of accessing those chemicals. So it's up to over 9,000 names that it hasn't been able to check notionally based on that rate. Long term, uh, they could be looking at some workforce effects. CISA has, of course, these chemical facility inspectors, sector risk management analysts, cybersecurity, analysts working on this program. 
Kelly Murray, Associate Director of CISA Chemical Security, says her staff is working on some voluntary security programs during this lapse in authorization. But if this continues over the next month, she's worried that they could start losing staff. If we have the same level of appropriations, but no authorization, or if our appropriations did go down, uh, I do have significant concerns that we will lose team members during this uncertainty as this lapse continues, and certainly if it continues past the fiscal year. And what about the cybersecurity side? I guess that's operational technology, which CISA is also concerned with. That's right. This has been an emerging focus under CISA and the chemical security program. It really falls under this larger push to improve cybersecurity across all critical infrastructure sectors. Last fall, uh, the White House and CISA launched what it called a 100-day cyber sprint with the chemical sector. That involved the nation's leading chemical companies and CISA agreeing to a plan to promote a higher standards of cybersecurity across the sector. There was a focus, as you pointed out, on industrial control system cybersecurity across these facilities, more information sharing and analytical coordination between the government and the chemical sector. That's a lot of voluntary activity. But since CFATS provides a regulation, uh, Murray actually says CISA has been working on a proposed rulemaking to update the CFATS program and include cybersecurity performance standards for the chemical sector. But that's something that's also now on hold since this this authorization has lapsed. Well, will Congress say to Senator Paul buzz off and go ahead and reauthorize this? What's the outlook? I guess one chamber comes back next week and the other chamber comes back the week after. Yeah, we'll have to see what the Senate actually does here, whether uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee uh, Chairman Gary Peters agrees to hold a hearing, how they work that out with Senator Paul. Um, You know, Murray says DHS and CISA legislative affairs teams are working with Congress to come up with a a solution, working, I assume, with Senator Paul's office to come up with a solution here. Congress doesn't have a lot of time before the end of the fiscal year, as uh, Murray pointed out, before some of these long-term ramifications happen. They have to work out a spending agreement or pass a stopgap spending bill before the end of the year. Eric Beyer is president and chief executive of the National Association of Chemical Distributors. He's a former Hill staffer. He talked about some of the uncertainty here over the next few weeks. What we don't want to see happen is get to September 30th. You all know the drama that's already starting to ramp up in the media when it comes to continuing resolutions and government shutdowns. We clearly don't want to get there. We don't want to have our bill or any other bills that could or could not be included in there being, you know, ramrodded through or not through. We want to get a nice clean vote if we can because the CR process is a messy one and there's a lot of very strong opinions on both sides of keeping the government open versus not. We don't want to go down that path. Yeah, I would only disagree with him in one point. It's not the media making this up. The the uncertainty and the drama is on the Hill itself, and we're just reporting on it. So then this is just one of a lot of things that's on the plate. Yeah, that's right. It's certainly a smaller issue if you're talking about general congressional issues over these next few weeks. But as uh, folks are saying here, it's it's a pretty important one for uh, chemical security across the nation. Yeah, and if there is a lapse in appropriations, so-called government shutdown, it is those people in the policy and rulemaking areas of CISA that would not be able to go to work. And so that could yeah, further push this down, you know, away. That's right. You know, the, the analysts and things like that, that might not be considered, uh, you know, critical in terms of operations. All right. Never a dull end of the summer around here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.